turn your Bibles to John chapter 6. Very familiar passage of scripture that moves us into a lengthy chapter that is filled in the latter part, mid to latter part, with some of the most theologically deep and rich uh, truths that we find anywhere in the Gospel of John. Really a very focused attention. The interesting thing that you find in chapter 6 is it begins on a very high note. It begins on a very positive note. Uh, There are crowds of people following Jesus. There's an excitement and enthusiasm that is surrounding his ministry, causing a a shift in the, the minds of people that perhaps indeed this is the Messiah. Could he be the one? to fulfill all prophecy and deliver us. The problem is that the expectation of the people, while anticipatory toward the coming of the Messiah, is skewed in the wrong direction. That is that they want the Messiah to come, but on terms that they have previously imagined. Now, I think a lot of us are like that. It's it's really unfair to be too hard on the disciples at this point because... I don't know that we're any different. In fact, I know we're not any different. Uh, We have certain images and expectations in mind, or we think we have a particular understanding with regard to prophecy or scripture or what God is doing in the world at any given moment. And when it works out differently, we're unprepared for that and really not sure sometimes how to deal with it. Uh, That is exactly the case of what's happening here. The Messiah and the expectation of the coming of the Messiah is that he would deliver them in the same way that Moses delivered them from Egyptian bondage. And so everything kind of models itself off of what Moses did. And it's not uncommon that we see this in the Gospel of John. In fact, he follows a very specific pattern throughout his teachings that bring to light a number of things, pulling together Old Testament traditions and showing the fulfillment of them through the coming of Jesus, the Son of God, and Himself, God. And so this is no different. The problem is that the expectations of the people that the Messiah would come, deliver them from Roman oppression, and then establish them as the ruler of the world, essentially, is wrong. That is not at all what Jesus is doing nor why he has come, but it is nonetheless the expectation of a lot of folks at that particular time. So this groundswell of support has less to do for the understanding of who Jesus is and the unique purpose for which he has come and more to do with their own desire of what they want or what they see as important. Are we any different? Aren't you happy for God to work in your life or around your life in some particular fashion as long as it coincides with what you expect? Are you happy for God to be at work in a way that profoundly changes the world as long as that change produces some betterment in your own life? In fact, that is one of the things that we have found in our particular culture is that if you model the church and you model the ministry and the message so that you present Christ as the one who makes all of your dreams and wishes come true, people will flock to that. Who doesn't want to hear that message? 
But what we discover is that in chapter 6, while there will be an amazing uptick in the popularity of Jesus, even to the point that they are going to gather themselves together and make him their king, even if he doesn't want to be, the same people who are so excited about the possibilities and potential that are here will soon cease to follow him so that by the time you get to the end of chapter 6, almost no one is left except for a very small band of disciples, the 12 among them as well as a few others. Now, what does this mean for us? It means that the focus of attention as you study a passage like this is not on our own personal benefit. The focus of the attention needs to be on the declaration, not of what Jesus can do, but on who Jesus is. With that in mind, let me share with you uh, just a, a quick background. We find it really in the, the passage itself as it helps us to understand more and more of what it's all about. Look at verses 1 through 4 before we look at anything else, uh, just as a way of introduction. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. What we find in John's Gospel is that he mentions the Passover three times. There are three Passover feasts that occur. This is the second that he has spoken of, and then the third that will come later will be during the week that Jesus is arrested and crucified. And so all of this sort of revolves around that. This Passover motif is also very prominent in John's Gospel because he refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world more than once. And in so doing, he is showing Jesus to be the fulfillment of what the Passover Lamb symbolized. So that the blood of the Lamb that protected the Israelites from the angel of death when he moved throughout Egypt and took the firstborn of every household, that same blood is now being given from the ultimate Lamb of God, and Jesus' blood will deliver us also from death, but through the removal of sin and the application of his righteousness. And so we see fulfillment taking place in all of these symbolic understandings and historic understandings of what God had been leading up to. The background of John 6 then is the reverence that the Jews held for that very first Passover time and Moses as their great deliverer. At the end of chapter 5, Jesus even said that Moses' words testified to him, if you believe Moses then you have to believe in Jesus. Because ultimately, if you don't, it will be Moses that condemns you by his own testimony. Moses led them in the Exodus that liberated Israel from Egyptian bondage and it established them as a nation. The Exodus is, in fact, the defining moment in the history of Israel and Moses is her greatest leader slash prophet they have ever known. You see the Exodus motif kind of set in motion in these first four verses. First, it says Jesus is leading a large crowd. By all estimations, 
there are at least 20,000 people that have gathered to follow Jesus on this occasion. The reason we know this is because it mentions 5,000 men. Therefore, if you add in all of the extended family that would have accompanied them, there had to be at least 20,000 and possibly even more. Moses also led a, a huge crowd of people out of Egypt to the promised land. They were following him, and he was leading them across the wilderness to the land of promise that God had given them. But second, the crowd is following Jesus because of the signs he was doing. The people followed Moses because of the signs he did in the plagues that were brought on Egypt that consummated in the final plague that ultimately resulted in their release. Jesus and his disciples went up on the mountain, it tells us in these first four verses, and we know that Moses and Joshua went up on the mountain to receive the law from God. And fourth, the events in John 6 took place at the time of the Passover, and the Passover would have been very present <clears throat> during the final plague on Egypt that resulted in the deliverance of the Israelites. They had been protected by the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their homes. Their physical deliverance from death is now going to provide the context for the spiritual deliverance from eternal death through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. Now, would they have understood all of that? No, they would not. And so, do we understand it? I don't know. Uh, I got to tell you, when I started into it, that wasn't exactly the direction I was headed, but it became very clear that this was, in fact, the context in which this passage was given. The next two events, then, will point back to the Exodus as the people were miraculously fed manna in the wilderness and were delivered from the Egyptian army at the crossing of the Red Sea. Jesus will show that he is God. Through the feeding of the multitude in the wilderness land and his sovereignty over the wind and the water of the lake. Following Jesus means deliverance from bondage. That was the concept. But now we see it in a much different way. We see it deliverance from bondage to sin in an even greater exodus. The title of the message then is A Greater Exodus, and the comparison is given to us through two miraculous events. The first is a miracle on the land. The second is a miracle on the lake. First of all, in verses 5 through 7, we see the miracle on the land. Look at verse 5. It says, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now you got 20,000 people, 5,000 men, and you need to produce enough bread to feed all of them. Even if they had a nearby Walmart, it wouldn't be enough. Forget about the money. The money represents, uh, it, re it represents about eight months of wages for one person, for a regular day worker. And so eight months of wages certainly would not have been in their possession. They used each day's wage in order to buy food for their families. 
But even if they had the money, which they did not, where would they go? Where would they find this? Why is Philip singled out? Well, he's from this region. So he's the one that's going to know. And, and he's going to be most familiar. The whole point of this is not because Jesus is looking for bread. He is helping them to come to grips with the reality of their own hopelessness. It's an interesting, an interesting dilemma, but a, but a circumstance that calls attention to the reality that we often find ourselves in circumstances that are so overwhelming and so far beyond our own ability that many times we, as a last resort, turn to God. I wish that it weren't that way. I, I wish that it weren't that way for me. I wish that I would turn to God first, but we don't. They were no different. So he is testing Philip to show the enormity of the problem so that when Jesus provides the solution, there can be no doubt regarding his divine power. The cost of the bread is excelled only by the inability of a human source to provide it. Philip's answer shows that the problem is beyond the scope of of their means. Our sin problem is beyond the scope of our means. We are utterly powerless to overcome the problem of sin. It is only only in the realization of this truth that we turn to God for an ultimate solution. Jesus is teaching the disciples that their journey is leading them to a greater understanding of God's provision. It is true for every believer, then and now. We come to Christ for salvation in the awareness and the realization that we cannot save ourselves. And we turn to him by faith, trusting that what he has done on the cross is sufficient to not only pay the penalty of our sin, but also to declare us righteous before a holy God, making us children of God. But beyond that moment... That testimony continues into the journey of life, into the exodus, away from this life that is so filled with corruption and sinfulness. And it leads us ultimately to a promised land in which there is a new heaven and a new earth. And along the way, we repeatedly discover our dependence on the provision of a holy God. Verses 8 And nine show other disciples in the mix. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Andrew finds a boy with a meal of barley loaves, five barley loaves. Barley is a a lower grade grain, a cheaper grain than wheat. And so poorer people would have had greater access to barley than they would wheat. And the loaves are not like the loaves of bread you have in your house. They're probably more like biscuits. Um, And so very small amounts of bread. And the two fish are probably dried fish that provide some measure of protein, but barely enough for one person, certainly not enough for others. But on first glance, when you hear Andrew say, wait a minute, 
there's a boy here who's got five loaves and two fish. It sounds like he's positive. Maybe he's going to show some faith. Maybe he's going to say, Jesus, I'm sure that if you can turn water into wine in such capacity as you did at the wedding supper in Cana, surely you can turn bread and fish into something that can feed this multitude. But what does he say? But what good is this? Again, the hopeless despair settles in upon them together. And they realize that there's nothing that they can do that can remedy the situation. They're confronted with the despair of their own resources. Our frantic efforts to fix our ultimate problems are laughably inadequate. When faced with situations that seem impossible, we still look to human solutions first in the hopes that we can fix it ourselves without faith in God. In verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing would be lost. So they gathered up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Jesus takes over the situation now. <clears throat> and he instructs the people to sit down in groups. He then thanks God and gives the people this divine provision that turns five loaves and two fish from a young boy into a meal of buffet proportions. It is remarkable when you see the measure that is provided and given. Now, what do you think when you read this? I think... What did that look like? I mean, is bread and fish just kind of flying out of his hands? Is it appearing in the baskets that are going to be used to distribute it? Is it showing up in some sort of way that is abnormal? Or is he just breaking it and breaking it and breaking it and it just keeps producing? I don't know. Why did I mention that? Uh, not just the ramblings of my own twisted imagination. Uh, I mention it because immediately, what do we do? We read that Jesus does a miraculous event, and then we try, start trying to figure it out. Deconstruct it. Let's uh, reverse engineer this miracle so that we can somehow gain an understanding that will make sense so that we can then place our approval on it. Let me tell you something, you're never going to figure this one out. You're never going to be able to do that in a way that is going to give you the satisfaction of knowing. People have always tried to figure this out. There was a, a Jesus project, which is an interesting name for such a liberal uh, exercise, but the whole point of what was being done in that effort was academicians were coming together and they were removing all of the miraculous and supernatural elements of the story of Jesus in order to understand who the man was historically without all of this other stuff. 
many of them believed that all of these kinds of supernatural, miraculous events were given in order to try to build up the acceptance of the people at the time, rather than in order to try and make, to show him as the man that he was. In the efforts, they take away all of the divine characteristics and qualities of Christ, removing his deity, which is exactly why John wrote the way he did, to prove that Jesus is God. When you take the divine away, you're back to what you had before anything else happened. You're back to hopelessness over your own meager resources. Why would you want to reduce the Savior, Son of God, God Himself, that has come to save you from your sins, to someone nothing more supernatural than yourself? I don't need another me. I need God. Jesus is that God. The difference between Jesus and Moses as reflected in his provision of the meal is that Moses asked God to do a miracle to provide manna for the people in the wilderness. Jesus simply did the miracle. The journey that brings us to God is a greater exodus. As followers of Jesus, we are following God himself. When everyone had eaten all that they wanted, there were 12 baskets of food that were gathered from what was left. So that Jesus not only provides an abundance, but even more than it's required. Nothing that comes from Jesus is wasted or lost. So when he says, gather up what is left over, and they gathered up 12 baskets full of food. Many people look at that number as being significant. I don't know where I stand on that. I'm not much of a a numerology type person. Uh, But I do think that it is interesting. There are 12 baskets. Does it represent the 12 tribes? Does it represent the 12 disciples? What exactly does it mean? Even if it means something like that, I don't know where to go after that. Once I identify that that's what it means, I don't know anything beyond that. So it doesn't matter to me. I think the whole point of it is that he's trying to show that there's more than enough to the people that are gathered. So it brings us to the question. Is Jesus enough for you? Is Jesus more than enough? I think that's a a valid question, and it's an important one for us to consider, especially in a moment such as this. Because I think a lot of times we, we want Jesus to do certain things, but we are so fixated on the world in which we live and the lives that we are all so much a part of that we forget that this isn't really what we're made for. That where we're headed and the exodus that we are currently involved in is one that reminds us repeatedly in the New Testament that we are but sojourners in this life passing through for a brief time as we move toward the conclusion that will be realized when we are at home with the Father. When Jesus comes again. I think it's hard for us to to focus on that and to remain fixed on it because we, we get so caught up in the world in which we live. 
I think we need to be engaged in the world. I think we need to be engaged in the communities in which we live. I think it is important for the church to be a bright light in the midst of a lot of darkness. And that in so doing, we are to shine that light in such a way that people are drawn to Christ for salvation and hope. But I don't believe that we need to look to Jesus Christ as the one to repair all the problems of our current existence and to make everything the way we want it to be. That was the flaw of the Jews. And as a result, they wanted Jesus to be their king, but they didn't want to be his subjects. The question really isn't whether or not you want Jesus to be your king. The real question is, do you want to surrender your life to him? Nothing that comes from Jesus is wasted or lost. We'll see that later on. And as it becomes a theme, and Jesus reminds that we who belong to him can never be lost so that we are taught that he not only delivers from sin, but he sustains us in the journey. In verses 14 and 15, when the people saw that the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The people respond with belief that Jesus is the prophet. Notice the definite article that appears in the text in verse 14. It's important. He's not a prophet anymore. He's the prophet. Uh, Again, relating him to the one who is like Moses. The one that has been prophesied to deliver them from the oppression of Rome. Perceiving that the crowd is going to attempt to make Jesus their new king, he withdraws from them. That isn't why he's there. He isn't there to deliver them from Roman oppression. He's there to deliver them from the oppression of sin. He's not there to make their lives comfortable. He's there to make them eternal. It is important to remember that most of the people in the crowd will stop following Jesus altogether by the end of chapter 6 simply because he does not want to conform to the image of their expectations. The reason they want Jesus is because of what he can do rather than because of who he is. Lots of people want Jesus if they think that he will do what they want. But it's an altogether different response when we realize that wanting Jesus is because we want to do what he wants. They withdraw. Verse 16 When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. When the disciples see Jesus, um, when when he withdraws to the mountain, they accompany him. But then after dark, when everybody's either dispersed or no longer paying attention, they go down and get into a boat. They're going to cross what it says is the sea to Capernaum. Uh, This is the Sea of Galilee, later known as the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, It's about six miles across this lake. It's really a lake. 
And, and so they're going to cross at night. The problem is that the lake is formed in a valley uh, that, that has a really rather unusual weather pattern that often affects it. Uh, the, the weather pattern will come through with winds that will churn the water and, and cause it to become very rough and choppy, can capsize boats, many people drown as a result of it, and it seems to be rather unexpected when it happens. They get into the boat, they go across, we can assume that the water was calm at least when they left and it seemed to be okay, but then the wind <clears throat> turned the water choppy and rough. One wonders why these events are set in motion. And yet again, we are reminded that they are given to us in order to demonstrate power. Before, the disciples are powerless to overcome the limitation of food. Now they are powerless to control or manage the elements of the earth. So that whether you're talking about personal issues that often rely on our own individual resources, financial or otherwise, or whether you're talking about these kinds of, of earthly issues that have to do with storms and waves and water, all of these things are beyond us. Here we see kind of a complete understanding. Jesus is doing this to demonstrate his power when the Israelites were faced with the army of Egypt and no escape. God told Moses to tell the people to see the hand of God. What came up? A strong east wind. The wind caused the waters of the Red Sea to divide, and the ground that was left exposed dried up so that the Israelites walked through the Red Sea on dry ground safety. Then when Egypt's army entered into the sea, the waters collapsed as the wind ceased. Again, showing the magnificence of God's power and glory. But notice what happens in this particular case. They go out and the sea becomes rough and the strong winds are blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, so they're about halfway across, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. I don't know why it's cutting out. It's not my voice that's breaking, nor is it my microphone. I don't know what it is. Uh, I think some of you are giving off some negative energy. <laughs> Maybe by the end of the service, I'll know you, your name and I can announce it. Um, I'm just glad to know you're still awake. <clears throat> when the disciples see Jesus, they're scared. Why? They're witnessing deity. They're seeing God. They have no explanation. There's no way to talk their way out of this. They're seeing something that is so far beyond what's natural and they're confronted with a being so much more powerful than they've ever imagined that they really don't know how to respond other than with fear. In the midst of the storm, it is interesting because they're no longer afraid of the storm. <laughs> now they're afraid of the one who obviously controls the storm. The storms are you going through right now? 
Whatever they are, let me encourage you, it is not the storm that poses your greatest risk. Don't fear the storm. Fear the one who controls the storm. Jesus comforts them and simply tells them, do not be afraid. It is in this word of encouragement, in this encouragement to set aside their fear, that we are reminded that Jesus brings us to himself, but he also at times comes to us where we are. We should all be reminded that he uses his power ultimately and will right all wrongs, establish his kingdom forever. He comes to us though individually and in the midst of that process, that exodus from where we are to where we will be, he says, don't be afraid. When he said that, what did they do? They gladly welcomed him into the boat. They were glad to have him with them again. And so Jesus comes to the disciples in the midst of a life-threatening event. And they welcome him in. But then it says they were delivered immediately from the storm and the water. It says instantly they were at the land. Now what does that look like? I mean, was there a wake behind the boat as it zipped across the water the other three miles to the land? Because I think that would have been really cool. Peter skiing behind it. You know he would have. Barefoot. Uh, I don't know. It doesn't say that. And it gives no definition. Do you know why sometimes the Bible doesn't give definition? Same reason it didn't give definition of what it looked like when he started multiplying bread and fish. It's because we would fixate on that. And we would get so caught up in it that, that we would be more interested in that than the fact that he has the power over the storm. Power over the water. Have you, I haven't even mentioned the fact that he was walking on top of the water. I mean, everything about what Jesus was doing was a display of his power over the elements of the earth and a reminder that he isn't the one who simply controls them. He's the one who created them. He's the one that brought them into existence. And it is by him that they continue and are sustained. Moses said this to the people of Israel, after he'd given them the law. He said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. All the way back to the days of Moses, near the end of his own life, he prophesied that there would be a prophet like him who would come. He testified that he would do the things that that Moses couldn't do. And he said to the people, please, I'm begging you, listen to him. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. The Exodus tells us of the mighty works of God to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. God accomplished his work through the prophet Moses and in the process established Israel as a nation that would bless all nations to come. And that one day a prophet greater than Moses would lead his people to the fulfillment of all that God had promised. John provides us with a very clear picture 
of the process that took place is Jesus is leading people to an eternal home and to eternal deliverance from sin and bondage to it. But the journey is not done. However, all that is necessary has been completed through the death and the resurrection of Jesus to show us and the entire world a greater exodus. I know that the feeding of the 5,000 is a familiar passage and that the events of it are events that we've learned so long ago. I'm sure that it is one of those stories that we just really don't even think about that much because it is so familiar. But in the midst of this story, the takeaway that we should hold to and what Jesus was doing was to show his deity, to show his authority, to show his power. He wasn't concerned about the multitude that would reject him. He was concerned about those who were with him. Today, his concern is about each of you, each of us. Do you see him? Do you hear him? Are you listening? Will you respond? These are the issues that are brought to light. When we realize that this journey, this exodus from a world of brokenness and sin is being led by Jesus and will bring us to the promised home where we were made to belong from the beginning. This is what redemption does. Prepares us, secures us, and brings us home. Only Jesus can do that. 